mine nasir mig. En juni morgon där det är för tidigt att vakna men för sent att somna om. Jag måste ut i granskan som är fullsatt av minnen och det följer mig med blicken. Det syns inte, det smälter helt ihop med bakgrunden. Perfekta kameleonter. Det är så nära att jag hör dem andas, fast fågelsången är bedövande. Hello everyone. In today's class you'll hear a discussion between me and my wife Claire about the poetry of Thomas Tranströmer. And at the end of this recording I'll give you an optional and just for fun writing prompt that will help you think about the poetry behind your poetry. What exactly do I mean by that very cryptic sounding writing prompt, the poem behind the poem? Well, I hope that the quote of the day will partly help explain it. The quote of the day is from Thomas Trenstromer's Nobel Prize acceptance speech in which he said this, The poem as it is presented is a manifestation of another invisible poem, written in a language behind the common languages. Thus, even the original version is a translation. A transfer into English or Malayalam is merely the invisible poem's new attempt to come into being. I love this a lot. It's definitely something I feel as a writer. I certainly don't want to sound mystical or self-aggrandizing or woo-woo, but when one gets an idea for a poem or the impulse to write a poem or feels a poem begin to grow in one's brain, it's always much better than what eventually ends up on the page. The words so often do seem to get in the way of whatever that primal, originary force, or sound, or vibration, or rhythm, or mood is. Thomas Trenstromer says this in one of his poems. Something wants to be said, but the words don't agree. Something which can't be said. Aphasia. There are no words, but perhaps a style. I just wanted this to be the quote of the day because I think it's a good guide into Thomas Trenstromer's poetry, but also relates to much poetry in general. Much poetry embeds within itself the struggle to come into being and the ways in which the words don't quite seem to obey the poet. That's one of the things that makes poetry such an exciting art form. The words are, of course, integral to poems. Poems are words. But as Eliot says in The Four Quartets, words always feel like shabby equipment, always deteriorating. So in most great poems, there's always this tension between the language and its beauty, but also its awkwardness and brokenness. And for more about invisible poetry and for brief, vivid, wonderful flashes of beauty, glimpses into that original world, let's go into that chat between me and Claire. Here we are again. Here we are. Um, wait, I'm getting text messages. Who are these from? Yes, here we are again. How are things? Really good. How good? <laughs> well, the kids aren't here. Kids aren't here. It's always a good start. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> um, this is uh, Claire Akebrand, my wife, author of a book of poems <laughs> called What Was Left of the Stars. 
and a novel called The Field is White. Yeah. Available for purchase on Amazon, or as our son would say, Amazon.com. <laughs> uh, okay, let's get to it. We're here to talk about the poetry of Thomas Transtromer. I asked you yesterday if Thomas Transtromer was your favorite poet. You said no. Well, yeah. And that really surprised me. I thought he was. Well, not favorite of all. I thought I really kind of thought he was. I mean, hmm. who are your favorite poets? I guess he's my favorite contemporary poet. But um, yeah, my favorite poet is Wallace Stevens, way up there with Keats. Keats and Wallace Stevens. Yeah, there's. I don't ever really think of other poets as being on that list. <laughs> I mean, high up on that list. But obviously, it's not true. But yeah, I mean, I love Transtromer. I am from Sweden, and I do speak Swedish, but I'm just going to call him Transtromer because it's one of my pet peeves to, like, I mean, if I'm in Sweden, I would, you know, I would pronounce his name the right way, but I'm not going to keep pulling it out, you know. And how is his name pronounced? Thomas Transtromer. Yeah, that's annoying. Yeah, I'm not going to do that to you every time. <laughs> I mean, it's beautiful. It's slightly annoying. Yeah. What makes him your favorite contemporary poet? He does this beautiful thing where he talks about something small, something mundane, falling asleep in a car, and then he wakes up and has this existential crisis, and suddenly things just feel bigger. It's You go from realism to surrealism so quickly in his poems and seamlessly, and he goes into these large themes and things turn spiritual so quickly and eerie and, and beautiful and... Yeah, in that particular poem where he talks about falling asleep in the car, there's this gorgeous moment where he's so where he's terrified for a few seconds because he doesn't remember where he is. He doesn't when he wakes up, he doesn't remember his own name. I don't know how many seconds that lasts, but and then he says, My name comes back to me like an angel. And that is such a gorgeous moment where he, he I don't know, it's so life-affirming just to have... He, I mean, I feel like the poem is saying just to have a name, just to have an identity. It's it's such a um, beautiful thing. Well, let's read that poem. What poem is this? Should it's I read the it name. or should you? It's the English version. You can read it if you want. Okay. This is called The Name. I got sleepy while driving and pulled in under a tree at the side of the road, rolled up in the back seat and went to sleep. How long? Hours, darkness had come. All of a sudden I was awake and didn't know who I was. I'm fully conscious, but that doesn't help. Where am I? Who am I? I am something that has just woken up in a back seat, throwing itself around in panic like a cat in a gunny sack. Who am I? After a long while my life comes back to me. My name comes back to me like an angel. Outside the castle walls there is a trumpet blast as in the Leonora Overture, and the footsteps that will save me come quickly down the long staircase. It's me coming, it's me. But it is impossible to forget the fifteen-second battle in the hell of nothingness, a few feet from a major highway, where the cars slip past with their lights on. Oh, so lovely. This Why? is about a car nap. Couldn't be less interesting, right? <laughs> a car nap, yeah. Right, but... I mean, we get to this uh, celebratory moment where he's basically, um, <laughs> I don't know, it's like this Walt Whitman moment suddenly. I'm here, I have an identity, I'm singing the song of myself, you know? Do you know what I mean? 
but he's not doing it in the Walt Whitman way. And it sneaks up on you because he's just in a car and there's nothing huge, nothing loud. It's just subtle, even plain. And actually, when I started reading him, I did not love him the first time around. I thought he was boring. I think I was too young. Maybe I did, maybe didn't read him the right way. But then when I came back to him, I realized that I wasn't seeing past the plane. There, I mean, we end up in a castle. Suddenly there's a, a trumpet blast and somebody that will save me, footsteps that will save me come quickly down the long staircase. It's me. I mean, such a gorgeous way of talking about one's own consciousness. So it's very interesting. This is one of the first poems that your mind would go to in a celebration of Transtromer. Because I happen to know about you that you hate sleep. <laughs> you hate sleeping. Well, I don't hate it. You do hate it. She hates it. <laughs> and uh, one of your favorite moments in the book of Speak Memory is that wonderful and hilarious paragraph in which he berates sleep as a betrayer of consciousness. Remember oh, this? Oh, yeah. That's you love that moment. Yeah. It's a, Nabokov talks about sleep as a kind of failure of the self. Wow. And yeah, he says it's a daily betrayal of consciousness. Yeah. I think that's how you feel about it. I think you're right. <laughs> so it's very funny that you'd go to this phone because it is a kind of victory over sleep and his name comes back to me and he regains, he regains himself after waking up. Yeah. So he goes into this vortex of um, selflessness and the fear that comes with feeling like you're no one and nowhere. Mm-hmm. And, it, and the process of waking up involves this call as if out of a long, dark tunnel mm -hmm. back into reality. Yeah. And you, you like coming back into reality. I do. I like being in a place where I can think. Thinking is all I have. <laughs> Maybe the biggest difference between you and me. Sleep is my favorite thing in the world, except for you, of course. Well, I just realized when you were saying all that, that this poem is basically the opposite of Ode to a Nightingale when it comes to the subject matter. You know what I mean? Well, he opposite. is coming back to uh, consciousness while and wanting that, and that's his salvation, while Keats wants to fade into the yeah. midnight without pain. He half does and half doesn't, half in love with ease for right. death. Says where in life is uh, whereby to think is to be full of sorrow. Yeah. But here, it's salvation. Thinking is salvation. Yeah, I love that. I really do. Anyway. So I want to talk about, there's, we could highlight more poems, but to zoom out a little bit, I want to talk about why it's difficult to talk about Transtromer. I find him a very difficult poet to talk about. Mm-hmm. And you used the word yesterday, enigmatic, to talk about his poems. And I find yeah. so many of his poems very, very enigmatic mm -hmm. in a kind of puzzling way. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you a question now. And that question is, does your love of him have anything to do with the fact that you read him in Swedish? I'm sure it does. Uh, Swedish is my first language. And I kind of, Swedish is such an intimate language to me. It's only the language of family to me. So to read in Swedish, it just feels so intimate. Yeah, but there are other, to play devil's advocate, there are tons of other Swedish authors, and you don't, they don't resonate with you in the same way he does. So there is something yeah. about him. Well, of course. Yeah, I mean, and I'm just like, saying that's part of it. And you like him in English. Oh, yeah. I think he's a really, really great poet to translate because he doesn't do that many tricks. Yeah, so tell people what, if anything, they're missing if they can't read him in Swedish. Well, it seems like Robert Bly is the main translator of 
mean, I think more have um, done translations. More people have done translations of his work, but since the Nobel Prize, probably right? for decades, I think it was more or less only Robert Bly. Well, when I read Robert Bly's translations, I used to kind of hate them, <laughs> but I'm a little bit more merciful now. I think um, the tone is a little bit off. Transtromer in Swedish is more serious. And um, Robert Bly has it a little bit of a more casual and um, playful than Transformers in Swedish. So that was kind of weird coming. I, I read the whole, um, all of his poetry one summer, and then I checked out some of the translations, and it was kind of jarring, just because I didn't feel like they were as serious as the Swedish ones. But he isn't a poet. I mean, that, that's, yeah, kind of more or less bound to happen, probably tonal. Yes. Tonal shifts are kind of inevitable. But he isn't a poet in which we're missing out on tons of no. Swedish puns or Swedish no. sound effects that can't be replicated or intricate rhyme structures that, that have been lost. He's exactly. quite a translatable poet. Yeah. I mean, it's one reason why he's so famous, I think. Yeah, exactly. And one reason why I have never really felt like I wanted to translate him because it didn't seem like a huge the translating part was a huge challenge so uh even though not much is lost in translation why don't you read one in swedish so that people can hear what it sounds like okay and if there are any swedes among you native speaking swedes just so you know i do have a little bit of a german accent according to <laughs> to swedes that yeah anyway <laughs> apologizing come on give me a break <laughs> okay. Mine nasir mig. En juni morgon där det är för tidigt att vakna men för sent att somna om. Jag måste ut i granskan som är fullsatt av minnen och det följer mig med blicken. Det syns inte. Det smälter helt ihop med bakgrunden. Perfekta kameleonter. Det är så nära att jag hör dem andas fast fågelsången är bedövande. It's a beautiful language. It's a, it's a little bit awkward, but I love that awkwardness. I don't know, it's like a little jumpy. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely more cadenced in some weird way. Yeah. Well, thanks. Mm -hmm. So, okay, so the reason I find him difficult to talk about doesn't have anything to do, I think you were agreeing, with the fact that I'm not reading him in Swedish. Right. But... And I, in preparation for this chat, I was trying to read a lot of articles and interviews and essays about him, and they are all very unhelpful because they all <laughs> say things like, they all say the most meaningless things like, oh, he's a poet of deep interiority or spareness. Well, that makes sense. Or enigma. But, I mean, not th those those descriptions might not be wrong, but they also don't really move the ball very far down the field. The, you know what does it mean if you had if you were here's the annoying question again if you were in an elevator with someone and only had two minutes to describe his poems you didn't prepare me for this question no and it is a hard and annoying question but i'm just trying to get to the core of what makes him different because you could say the same thing about so many other poets yeah. emily dickinson is a poem poet of the interior yeah she is very enigmatic yeah she can be very spare mm -hmm. um you know, and so can dozens of other great poets. So what is it that is Transtromer ask about Transtromer? I would say he is deceptively simple, talks about artists and history and weaves them into his mundane images in such a seamless and accessible way. 
I say accessible, not necessarily that you know what everything means, but just that there's this um, conversational tone and you feel welcome into the mystery rather than pushed away by it. Another version of this question is, if you wanted to write an imitation of him, what ingredients would an imitation of him have? What would you put on the page to sound like Trent Stromer? I would tell myself not to be afraid of talking about very unpoetic things. Something like, I know I keep saying this, but driving, for example. I'm saying that because he has so many poems about driving and roads. So I would pick a car (laughs) or a certain stretch of road, and um, then I would give myself the challenge of somehow tying up those images with space and all the great mysteries of life and the universe. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's. I think that's what he is trying to do all the time. I just, as you were saying that, opened this poem totally randomly, and it totally com- completely corroborates everything you just said. This poem is called "Under Pressure." Don't think that's a Queen reference. Powerful engines from the blue sky. We live on a construction site where everything shivers, where the ocean depths can suddenly open, a hum in seashells and telephones. You can see beauty if you look quickly to the side. The heavy grain fields run together in one yellow river. The restless shadows in my head want to go out there. They want to crawl in the grain and turn into something gold. Night, finally. At midnight, I go to bed. The dinghy sets out from the ship. On the water, you are alone. The dark hull of society keeps on going. Hmm. So it starts with engines driving. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and there's a construction site, which is kind of plain and mundane, as you say. Yeah. And then, as you say, he quickly, this is a 12-line poem, goes from reality to unreality mm-hmm. and says, you can see beauty if you look quickly to the side. So suddenly we're kind of in this dinghy in a ship mm. sailing off into somewhere. Yeah. And the poem gets weirdly cosmic. Yeah. Explicitly grand. Mm-hmm. And I just picked this poem at random, more or less. And I, I thought to myself as you were speaking, I wonder if this poem does what she says. And it, I think it totally does. Yeah, it does. Good job, me. <laughs> you, can, you can see beauty if you look quickly to the side is a kind of mini ars poetica for Thomas Trenstromer, isn't it? Yeah. It feels like he uh, he's saying that there's always beauty lingering somewhere in the corner of your eye. But you have to look quickly. You can't. You can't just uh, keep it there in the corner of your eye. Yeah, there's there's two important things about that: the quickness and the cornerness of it. <laughs> it's always fleeting. That's what that's yeah. one impression I get from Transformer. His poems are short, mostly. He he does have some long poems in sequences, but they're mostly short. And you do get the sense that whatever he's seen in the world, he's seen in glimpses only. Yes. Oh, that's a really good and description. And quickly, kind of jots it down. Yeah. So this other world, this beautiful world, whatever flashes of insight or beauty or truth or mystery or divinity or meaning he finds, he finds fleetingly. Mm-hmm. And they don't reside for long. He can't ever hold them still. Yeah. And they're always to the side of your eye. You mm-hmm. can never really quite stare at them. Right. The I mean, construction site's right there in plain sight, but the other things, 
they are to the side. We live on a construction site where everything shivers, where the ocean depths can suddenly open. So we live our daily lives, but every once in a while, suddenly an ocean will open up under you. Mm-hmm. No, I just want to ask, what does that mean? I feel like it's a, it's a tad too new agey. <laughs> suddenly an ocean can open under you. What are we talking about? I Let's think he likes to question reality at every step of the way. He he likes to think of parallel happenings or like events or universes or societies like here there's a society that are happening at the same time. Yeah. And not somewhere else but in this life with us. Yeah. That we are not aware of and that poetry it's poetry's job uh, seemingly according to him to make us aware of even just the presence of those other things. This is very helpful for me. I'm learning a lot because he, yeah, I've always been slightly confused by his poems and not in a bad way. I've been delighted by them too, but this is exactly what he does. You're right. He just wants you to not have tunnel vision, mm-hmm. human tunnel vision, yeah. where you're thinking about your life and your problems and your point of view. Yeah. He wants to just make you aware that there are other vantage points Mm-hmm. other perspectives, other worlds. So yeah. to say sometimes an ocean opens up under you, it's just a way of describing those moments when we when we are forced to see the world from a, a different perspective. I think of, I don't, I won't be able to turn to the poem exactly, but he has this wonderful poem. He's walking around like a road and in a ditch he sees this empty glass bottle. And then the poem says something like, go into the bottle. And he takes us into the bottle and then he looks up at the sky from inside the bottle. Mm. as if we're some kind of weird bug that's crawled in there. So he's constantly wanting to or attempting to or finding ways of unsettling our routine, habitual outlook on life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also that wonderful moment in Sorrow Gandala, which you love. We should read this. Yeah, it's gorgeous. Uh, this is, is this your favorite Transformer poem? I think so, yeah. It's about, um, what's it about? It's about musicians. Right. Who, who is it about? Wagner and uh, Litz's daughter are married and live in Venice. Yeah. And Litz comes to visit them. <clears throat> and um, a few weeks or months later, shortly after Wagner dies, and Litz writes these beautiful um, compositions for him. This is an example of Transtromer forcing us to look at a world in a not necessarily routinely human way. So this is the second stanza, and this is the bit you love so much. Should you read it? Yeah, no, you read it. Okay, so this is section two. A palazzo window blows open. They make a face at the sudden draft. Outside on the water, the garbage gondola passes, oared by two one-armed thieves. Liszt has composed a few chords so heavy, one should send them off to the Institute for Meteorological Studies in Padua meteorites far too heavy to stay where they are they start sinking and sinking down through the coming years until they reach the year of the brown shirts the heavily loaded gondola carried the hunched stones of the future so swoon over that for a minute okay so all my favorite things that he does in his poetry all happen right there he talks about music in a gorgeous way and makes his love of music so concrete chords so heavy that they turn into meteorites that is so gorgeous and then he goes even more concrete by saying that you could actually send them to an institute 
for mineralogical studies. I mean, that, okay, so that's cool. And again, ties something immediately to space. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they're far too... I feel like I'm just reading it again. No, no, no. This is all we can do. <laughs> and, and he ties in history again. Other events, other happenings. So they start sinking and sinking through the coming years into the future. Yeah. That's how heavy they are. Yeah, so he's so quickly tied space and history and other events to these chords. It's great what you say about making music something concrete and heavy. It's slightly synesthesia mm. happening here. It's a little bit not... not um, what was the word you used for Bly's translations? There is, some, there is something playful here. Send them off to the Institute for Mineralogical Studies in oh, Padua. Yeah. Well, I he, wasn't... He is... He he can be comedic in some ways. Yes. I should say that I didn't mean that trans drummer is never funny. He definitely is. He is casual in tone and he is funny, but he doesn't sound quite as awkward when he does it right. as Robert Bly. Right. He's more graceful about it. <laughs> this is another great poem. Should we read Allegro? It's about music. Yeah. Trans drummer is a pianist and occasionally was a pianist. And occasionally performed. He was concert level, right? Mm -hmm. And I even read that a lot of composers in Sweden after Transformer had a stroke in the 90s, and he couldn't use both hands anymore, just one, um, they, would send, they would send music specifically for him that he could play with his left hand. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was beautiful. This might be one of my favorites. I also like the Vermeer poem, but it's slightly longer than this. This is, this is simply called Allegro. After a black day, I play Haydn and feel a little warmth in my hands. The keys are ready. Kind hammers fall. The sound is spirited, green, and full of silence. The sound says that freedom exists and someone pays no taxes to Caesar. I shove my hands in my Haydn pockets and act like a man who is calm about it all. I raise my Haydn flag. The signal is, we do not surrender, but want peace. The music is a house of glass standing on a slope. Rocks are flying. Rocks are rolling. The rocks roll straight through the house, but every pane of glass is still whole. Sorry, that's just the sound of me sinking into the ground. It's obviously good. We don't need to explain why this is good, right? Right. I guess we should anyway. Why is this good? I love, I mean, after a black day, I play Haydn. That's all great. Yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. It's kind of plain, simple, clear. The sound is spirited, green, full of silence. That's kind of strange. It's not dazzling yet, I don't think. To say, I think so. <laughs> to say, well, to say that the sound is green, it's like, yeah, I get it. He's trying to describe it in a new way. I guess what I mean is it's beautiful, but... That's something I could see coming. I know, but there's so much happens with the black and the green. You go from like a construction site to the forest. That's how it feels. You go from something um, industrial to pure nature. Yeah. Anyway, keep going. But it's what comes next that really dazzles me and that I'm certain I could never come up with. The sound says that freedom exists. It's like music is proof of, great art is proof of lofty abstractions. Mm -hmm. In a way that 
could never really be explained or talked about. How would I ever prove that freedom exists or that humans are humans have worth or dignity or that meaning is possible? Mm-hmm. Well, you can't really. I would just play some Bach or mm-hmm. stand you in front of you know the David sculpture or something. These are the best proofs of works like this are the best proofs of goodness and virtue. Mm-hmm. The sound says that freedom exists, and someone pays no taxes to Caesar. Oh, I know. Why is that so good? It's it's this thing I never knew I felt when I listened to great music, but it feels rebellious, but not just for the sake of being rebellious. It feels like you are fighting something, some worthy cause. <laughs> you know, you're fighting for your own freedom, but you want peace. You know, the, we do not surrender, but want peace. That's great, too. That's like my third favorite line. We do not surrender. So music, the signal of Haydn is humans, yes, death, yes, entropy, yes, pain, yes, suffering. And yet, I will compose this music. Mm-hmm. I will play this music. I will not give up. And I will fight for all of these things. And I'll fight against conventions. And I'll fight against tyranny. The, the tyranny of the mundane life. Someone pays no taxes to Caesar. It's like, (laughs) I can, this music has proved to me that I can... Be an individual. Yeah, I am not a subject in some kind of empire or a cog in a machine. Exactly. I can can act. I'm an independent agent. Yeah. It's so wonderfully phrased, too, because it's not like the sound says that I can pay no taxes, just like someone. It's enough to know that someone somewhere in their own small, insignificant way is acting as an individual. Right. I love that. I just love that distancing. Mm-hmm. And the Haydn pockets is very good too. So oh, yeah. it's kind of like this image of you putting your hands on the keyboard and they do slip into another realm. Mm. Yeah. A whole a pocket of something that is not of this earth. I have more of an image of him um, putting his hands in his pockets, in his pants pockets. Like he's standing there, act like a man who's calm about it all. I Somebody get, just standing there with their hands in their pockets, you know? I mean, who knows? You, I'm, you're probably right. Uh, he, I just, I'm just thinking of, the, he's told us that he's playing the song. So I don't know. It's like well, the image in my hand is <laughs> those uh, quarantine bubbles that have those two holes for hands. <laughs> and, you know, doctors or nurses can put their hands in and... <laughs> Tree patients. There is an invisible one of those surrounding every piano. Mm, you know what nice. I mean? Yeah. And you put your hands in those pockets and suddenly they're in some other atmosphere. Mm. Um, and how, this is just like the rocks roll straight through the house, but every pane of glass is still whole. I know. This is such a strange poem because I would have never put all of those pieces together. I might have thought in a brilliant moment of one of those metaphors and been right. like, okay, I'm done. I've I've done it. <laughs> yeah. But he has these strange parts that he's put together and the glass house is so gorgeous. I've stolen that image in a poem I'm working on now. It's not a glass house, but it is something. It's not quite finished, so I can't really talk about it. Not that it's some great state secret, but... Yeah, I just a note to everyone listening who wants to write poetry: steal what you love. Mm-hmm. And doesn't great art feel exactly like that? This fragile, no, or not fragile, but delicate-looking thing, like this glass house, that nothing can break, that things keep bombarding. Nothing. There's so many things in this world that don't want beauty to exist. Yeah. And the rocks keep coming, but the house just stands there. 
See, that's it's that surrealism that I love so much again. It's just a strange, I picture this weird glass house in a field that doesn't exist. But he leads us there in a way that feels more or less realistic. Do you know what I mean? More or less realistic? Yeah. I mean, it's almost a ordinary image, but then the house is glass. Yeah. Is there anything in this introduction by Robert Bly that you want to highlight? Does this help a person enter his poems in an yeah, important way? I think so. I think it's a really nice um, introduction, actually, that touches on some of his uh, biography, too. That he was a psychologist, and he also worked with delinquent youths, boys mostly, and um, people would ask him in poetry readings, how has you know working with people like that influenced your poetry? And he always... He sometimes said, I, I wonder why nobody ever asks me how my poetry influence, influences my work. Mm. I really like that. I think that kind of that kind of attitude is so um, apparent in, in his poems, that subversion. You know, like, this thing affects this thing, but maybe it's the other way around. There's one poem where he, I forget what the title is, but he talks about being drawn to the ocean into the ocean while at the same time rocks are walking backwards out of the ocean worlds mingle his professional world and his poetry world are not yeah different not they're not different occupations so it's a great it's a great comeback why isn't anyone asking how poetry could make people better psychiatrists for troubled youths yeah i know i how could it you tell people I'm kind of jealous. I wish he was my therapist. <laughs> well, what, what, we've talked before, uh, you and me, for these recordings about how poetry makes nothing happen, as Auden said. It's not a revolutionary instrument. So is there some way that it can psychologically heal us? Yeah, I 100% believe that it does. In what way? Most of all, above all, it makes me aware I'm not uh, a walking zombie by becoming aware of his or you know other people's strange lives and their parallel universes and and layers of consciousness you know what i mean <laughs> then i kind of i become aware of my own complexity as a human and of all the mm -hmm. of the weight of small small things of everyday life of the of all the mysteries too. It, it couldn't be more life affirming, you know, when somebody teaches you how to not be bored, <laughs> right? How to see more things, yeah, including what's inside yourself. Well, yeah, or to see the same things that you've always seen, but like from inside of a bottle. Yeah. Uh, in this introduction, Robert Blythe says this. It was Rilke who created the metaphor that poets are, quote, bees of the invisible. And then Robert Bly goes on, making honey of the invisible suggests that art, the artist remains close to his own earthly history, but moves as well toward the spiritual and the invisible. With the help of real images. Yeah, you seek out pollen from flowers that nobody else can see and turn it into honey that everyone can taste. That sounds good to me. Um couple more, maybe. A couple more Transformer poems. 
This is a famous poem by him, isn't it? After a death. Yeah. It's one of his most famous. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk a little bit about, I mean, it has a magnificent ending, but it is slightly baffling or I don't know. Anyway, once there was a shock that left behind a long shimmering comet tail. It keeps us inside. It makes the TV pictures snowy. It settles in cold drops on the telephone wires. One can still go slowly on skis in the winter sun through brush where a few leaves hang on. They resemble pages torn from old telephone directories, names swallowed by the cold. It is still beautiful to hear the heartbeat, but often the shadow seems more real than the body. The samurai looks insignificant beside his armor of black dragon scales. I mean, that last sentence, the samurai looks insignificant beside his armor of black dragon scales, is is a sentence to have been born and die for. You know, I'd kill to be able to write that sentence. Mm-hmm. I have to admit, though, so we'll talk about why it's so good in a minute, but I mean, I'm mostly puzzled and, uh, what's the word, unmoved by the poem up till then. Do you have anything to say about why I should be as in love with the first... Ten lines of this poem. Once there was a shock that left behind a long, shimmering comet tail. I like the image, but what shock is this? Yeah. The poem is called After a Death. After what death? What shock? Um, I, I feel like he's talking about general, a general death, like mortality. So, and how it changes, uh, changes our ordinary lives. It, I guess the shock, keeps us inside. Yeah, the shock of whoever died, or death in general. So we're too sad to leave home? This is what he's talking about? Mm-hmm. It makes the TV picture snowy. Mm-hmm. Okay. It settles in cold drops on the telephone wire, so grief kind of pervades all aspects of life. Yeah. One can still go slowly on skis in the winter sun through brush where a few leaves hang on. That's clear. Mm-hmm. You can still live your life Yeah. and enjoy simple seasonal pleasures Mm -hmm. they resemble pages torn from old telephone directories this is a metaphor for the leaves Mm -hmm. names swallowed by the cold back to the death all these people in the telephone book have have or will die yeah it is still beautiful to hear the heartbeat yeah so obviously this uh persona is still alive and grateful to have survived that other person it's still beautiful to hear the heartbeat but then I, the ending is so great. I just, I feel like he's saying that the imagined is so much bigger, so much bigger than what is actually happening. It's a, I'll take one step back and it's a risky, he's such a risky poet to talk about, especially for somebody like me, because I absolutely hate interpreting poems. Mm, yeah. Hate it. I know. I, I feel bad. I always say, I feel like he's saying. But he we were talking about this yesterday. He is in his last, you said in conversation, he celebrates enigma. And I said, that's interesting because his last book is called the great or the last enigma, something like this. Yeah. So he's purposefully enigmatic. And I feel like this came up in our conversation about Rilke in letters about the Duino elegies. Rilke says that the hardest, most uninterpretable moments in those poems shouldn't be interpreted as much as they should be simply submit submitted to. Mm. Yeah. 
So I feel like the most appropriate reaction to some of Transformers' most enigmatic moments is to submit to them and not try to interpret them. Yeah. It's, well, it's hard to know I feel what like the boundary is between there. but I think it's impossible, maybe, as a human to not interpret things. I think... That's probably true. There are so many, at least for me, with his poems, they're so evocative. There's so many strange images that do so much work. I feel like so my thoughts branch off into a hundred directions. And I love that feeling. It's my favorite feeling in the world when so many things are being suggested at the same time, like this inexhaustible image. So here at the very end, what's I feel like there might be something that's two opposites might be being suggested. At the risk of betraying my pedagogical principles, <laughs> kind of interpret these last lines in two different ways. Often the shadow seems more real than the body. So the shadow meaning what the spirit no the the what absence can sometimes seem more present than presence yes it's kind of tricky I th yeah i think one interpretation can be the the concrete versus the abstract the real versus the imagined so as somebody who has a lot of health anxiety i know exactly what it means you know all the things i imagine that could happen to me they that might be real. happening. They seem more real. They're bigger. But the last two lines, the best part of the poem, mm -hmm. seems to, it doesn't seem to suggest the opposite, but it does, I think, mean other things. The samurai looks insignificant beside his armor of black dragon scales, which is so gorgeous. Well, but, but the I, black dragon scales, that's imagined. Here you have something. Oh, no, it's not imagined. They're, they're present. Well, they They're, are, but a dragon is an imaginary creature. That samurai armor is so breathtaking. Yeah. It's so vivid. Uh-huh. I know exactly what he means. It can seem more real. But this must be a kind of suggestion. This is how I read dancing around this word interpret. Mm -hmm. This is how I read those last lines, that art is better. Yeah. Because again, art lasts forever. And it's in the imagine, imagination realm. But it's not, because you can touch samurai armor. It's not imaginary. Well, yeah, but it was created by the imagination. It's in the same... But that's what I mean about the shadow. This kind of slightly contradicts the shadow, because the shadow is absence, or it's what you can't touch, or what isn't real. But then he says the body is insignificant compared to this immortal, physical, tactile object that somebody made. Took him eight years to make this thing. It's a work of art. It's shiny. It's black. It, I... it will never die. Yeah, I do think... And the body will die. So art is better because art never dies. Yeah. And people die. They're exaggerated versions. I mean, a shadow is an exaggerated version kind of of your... of anything. Do you know what I mean? So the shadow is the samurai suit. Uh-huh. But the samurai suit lasts forever and you can touch it and the shadow is fleeting and you can't touch it. Don't you know what I mean, though? They, the last two lines say to me, art is important because it is immortal. The body is frail. It's sad that people died. The body is frail. The reason we make art is because it's what the body isn't. Mm -hmm. Immortal. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great, I think it's a good reading of that part. But then how are shadows more real than the body? This is, this is a good example of Transtromer Enigma. Should we read another poem? Yeah. Uh, not all of Vermeer, but this is so great. I don't think this requires any interpretation. One last thing here before you read it. I love the way Transtromer talks about artists slash music in a 
not in a snobby way, not name-dropping, but rather as somebody who's truly in love and can't help but bring it up. Yeah, I've often wondered about this because you do risk... It's very tempting to write about your favorite artists, your favorite painters, your favorite musicians, your favorite symphonies, your favorite this and or that, historical figures. Yeah. But um, you do run the risk of appearing like a snob. Yeah. But he, the way he does it, like his tone is is not at all arrogant. And I mean, the Hayden, Hayden poem where he's like, I, I slip my hands into my Hayden pockets and act like a man who's calm about everything. It doesn't feel like he's saying, I only listen to great music. I have great taste in music. You know what I mean? <laughs> Plus, there, one really shouldn't have to feel apologetic for loving great art. So no. I feel like he's a great example of a person who just says, who refuses to get defensive about having these kinds of tastes and reminds us that Vermeer and Haydn, etc., are for all humans everywhere. Exactly. The reason why these artists are important is because they speak to humanity. They don't speak to overeducated snobs only. There's something deeply human yeah. about all of them. They all say that freedom exists for all of us. Yeah, that's right. Not just for the snobs of the world. <laughs> and the Vermeer painting couldn't be a better example of this. So I'll just skip the first couple stanzas. This is his poem Vermeer, starting a bit way in. And then straight through the wall from there, straight into the airy studio and the seconds that have got permission to live for centuries. Oh. How great is that? Oh, man, that breaks my heart. <laughs> so everybody listening should Google this Vermeer painting. It's called A Woman in Blue Reading a Letter, because he's about to talk about it. It's such a great description of what paintings are, especially Vermeer, who captures these subjects in domestic, um, impromptu moments, simply moments. Mm. These are seconds that have got permission to live for centuries. Paintings that choose the name, the music lesson, or a woman in blue reading a letter. She, this is the woman, the subject of this painting, she is eight months pregnant, two hearts beating inside her. The wall behind her holds a crinkly map of terra incognita. Just breathe. An unidentifiable blue fabric has been tacked to the chairs. Gold-headed tacks flew in with astronomical speed and stopped smack there, as if they had always been stillness and nothing else. Why are you swooning? Well, obviously, <laughs> for obvious reasons. And you he, got space in there again. Yeah, that's right. Astronomical Maybe. speed. Uh -huh. He's celebrating the tacks in these chairs. You can look at this painting. They're not hidden, but they're not the center of our attention. But he looks at them and says, look at those. Somebody nailed those in. And had to do it like with enormous power. Oh, Gold-headed tacks flew in with astronomical speed. Oh, that is such a beautiful contrast to the peaceful image of the painting. Mm. The ears experience a buzz. Perhaps it's death or perhaps height. It's the pressure from the other side of the wall. The pressure that makes each fact float and makes the brushstroke firm. Passing through walls hurts human beings. They get sick from it. But we have no choice. It's all one world. Now to the walls. The walls are a part of you. One either knows that or one doesn't, but it's the same for everyone except small children. There aren't any walls for them. I'm hearing the ghost of Rilke behind those lines. Anyway, I'll keep reading to the end here. The airy sky has taken its place leaning against the wall. It is like a prayer to what is empty. 
and what is empty turns its face to us and whispers, I am not empty. I am open. Oh my gosh. Okay. That last line is like one of my top 10 favorite lines in all of poetry. Tell us why. It's one of the most hopeful lines I can think of to completely change your way of thinking that things that are empty are not empty, but they're are open. Things that are hopeless are opportunities, etc. I'm starting to feel like I'm uh, reducing hard, it to... Yeah, no, it's hard to talk about this. This happens all the time without sounding immediately cliche and trite. The, the reason yeah. why these lines, lines like this, and this has happened in these podcasts before, the reason why these lines are so miraculous is because they, they tell us things that we've heard before, but in a way that seems totally new in, in phrasings, in language, in images, in syntax, in rhetoric that makes us, like we've said before, see them in a totally new way. It reminds us of what we'd forgotten that we knew. Mm-hmm. I am not empty, I am open. So even in the emptiness... Yeah, good luck. <laughs> yeah. You just have to write this poem so that you can say that line. That's right. This is reminding me of what Mandelstam says. He says about poetry, maybe my favorite definition of poetry. Where there is the possibility to paraphrase, where the sheets have not been rumpled, there poetry, so to speak, has not spent the night. In whatever bed it's possible to paraphrase, where the sheets have not been rumpled, there poetry, so to speak, has not spent the night. Poetry spends no time in beds where it's possible to paraphrase. Or in other words, poetry cannot exist in places where poetry is not necessary. Because you're paraphrasing in order to avoid the poetry, to explain it. You know what I mean? That's right. Poetry is not about conveying information, because right. you can do that through paraphrase. Right. So anytime that anything that you can paraphrase, their poetry doesn't rumple the sheets, doesn't spend the night in places like that. Hmm. It spends the night in places where you cannot paraphrase where you simply need to... That's why the best answer to what does this poem mean is to simply reread the poem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's why we're stumbling here. Uh, I am not empty. I am uh, <laughs> I am open. It's... It feels like one of the truest statements of my life, but I... Yeah. When I tried to... <laughs> when I started going into yeah. what seems hopeless <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> turns into an opportunity. <laughs> so I'm sorry about that. <laughs> no, it's a great... No, it's really important to remind ourselves that... Why does poetry matter? It's not to convey information, it's to... Suggest things we know are true. And things that we've forgotten. Yeah. Suggest things we know are true, but which we've forgotten. Mm-hmm. I like that. Poetry, according to Michael and Claire. You should all go read Transtromer. Last words, final comments? Oh, yes. Do go and look him up on YouTube. There's a really There's a few beautiful recordings of him reading some poems, especially one in which... He plays the piano and also is reading Allegro. I'm going to make the outro music to this episode that exact thing. So the music you hear at the very end of this recording is Thomas Transtromer playing the piano and reading that poem Allegro about the Haydn and the Haydn pockets in Swedish. He has a beautiful, beautiful, simple reading voice. He Mm. doesn't do that weird thing. (laughs) Where (laughs) Where every statement is a... Question? (laughs) Now for today's writing prompt. As I've already hinted, I want you to attempt to begin drafting a poem that is about that which cannot be spoken of.
or another way to say this, a poem about what can't be said in words, or a poem that enacts the difficulty of speaking, or a poem that tries desperately to glimpse into that other original forgotten language that Transtromer alludes to. There is, of course, Transtromer's poems as an example of how to do this. And I've mentioned T.S. Eliot as a second example. He says in the Four Quartets poetry, the poetry does not matter. Or he'll say, that was a way of saying it, not very satisfactory. There are other examples. John Ashbery comes to mind. He begins one of my favorite poems called The New Spirit by saying, I thought if I could put it all in, that would be one way. And then the thought came to me that if I could leave all out, that would be another truer way. So this is a poem that is contemplating the difficulties of the very medium on which the poem relies. A third example is Keats, who says, heard melodies are sweet, but those unheard are sweeter. It's always something about the unwritten poem, the unheard song that is more attractive or appealing or can remain in a kind of perfect state, untouched by the brokenness or awkwardness or infelicities, the shabby equipment of language. So do this in whatever way you want. Embed in the poem a struggle to say what you mean. And since it's uh, Swedish Day, I thought I'd read a poem by another fantastic Swedish poet that's kind of hard to get your hands on in English. Her name is Edith Södergran, and this poem is called Arrival in Hades, translated by none other than our very own Claire Akebrand, my wife. Arrival in Hades. Here is eternity's shore, where the current rushes along and death plays in the reeds, its tired old song. Are you silent now too? We have come from far away, and we hunger to hear. We have never had a nurse who could hum like you. That's it for today. I hope you enjoyed that discussion about Transformers poetry. There will be another recording in a few days, but in the meantime, keep reading, keep writing, keep moving towards that primal, original, unspoken poetry. And don't forget that you too have what it takes to be a great writer. Allegro. Jag spelar Haydn efter en svart dag och känner en enkel värme i händerna. Tangenterna vill, milda hammare slår, klangen i grön, livlig och stilla. Klangen säger att friheten finns och att någon inte ger kejsaren skatt. Jag kör ner händerna i mina Haydn-fickor och härmar en som ser lugnt på världen. Jag hissar Haydn-flaggan, det betyder vi ger oss inte, men vill fred. Musiken är ett glashus på sluttningen där stenarna flyger, stenarna rullar. 
och stenarna rullar tvärs igenom. Men varje ruta förblir hel. <skratt>